Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. All right. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we find ourselves in our summer series of selected passages through the Gospels and following Jesus, encounters with Jesus. And today we find ourselves in what is probably in the top three of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. The story of this man who brings his son to Jesus. So I'm going to read the text and then we're going to work our way through it. Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29. Please, as best you can, pay attention to the reading of God's Word. Sometimes we can lose our focus in longer passages, but in the next few minutes as I read through this text without comment, this is the only part of the sermon that is divinely inspired and infallible. This is the best part of this Sunday, is the reading of God's Word. So let me read Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he 
arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before your word this morning. I humble myself before your word. Help us, Father. Use your word as a scalpel on our souls. Do surgery on us, I pray. Make us more like Christ. Or lead us to him for the very first time. Wound us and heal us. And I pray that you do it all for the glory of your name and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name alone that I pray. Amen. The most published English book in the English language, other than the Bible, is a famous book written in the 1600s by a famous Puritan preacher, an uneducated man named John Bunyan, no relation to Paul. And John, John Bunyan wrote this book, Pilgrim's Progress, I think, large portions of it when he was locked up in prison for preaching the gospel. And it's this journey of this man named Christian. It's an allegory of the Christian life. I know many of you in this church have read this book and many love it dearly. It's a wonderful story. It's the reason why I think it's the second most published book in English other than the Bible. And there's this scene in this journey, this progress of the pilgrim named Christian, where he's walking with his friend, hopeful, along the narrow way, the journey of Christian, as he's wanting to go to the celestial city that the evangelist has told him about, heaven. And the ground that they're walking on, he's with his friend named Hopeful, and it's getting difficult, the narrow way is difficult, and he's tempted to take a shortcut. In fact, he sees this, this little sort of ladder over this fence, and he says to Hopeful, he says, let's, let's take that little shortcut into this meadow. And they take this little shortcut into this meadow, and it's not quite like they hoped it would be. In fact, there's this man, I think his name is like Vain uh, Confidence, and they follow him for a little while, and he falls into a pit and dies, and so they've veered off the narrow path, and they're in this giant meadow, and the night starts to come, and they fall asleep, and they wake up in the morning, and there is this giant standing over him, and he is aptly named Despair, the giant Despair. And the giant says, you've wandered, you've trespassed into my meadow, and now you're mine, and I'm going to lock you up in my castle. And guess what the name of his castle was? It's the Doubting Castle. And he takes Christian, and he takes Hopeful, and he locks them up in Doubting Castle. And they are so despairing in Doubting Castle, and in fact, the giant despair he talks to his wife, and she says, well, why don't you go try and encourage them to take their own life? And the giant despair goes to Christian and hopeful, and he says, man, you've lost all hope. You should just take your life. In fact, here, let me help you out. Here's some poison. Here's a knife. Here's a noose. Just take your own life. I think that's where a lot of Christians at various times find themselves to one degree or another, locked in the doubting castle, held captive by the giant despair. 
and this, this story, we call it a story, but it's a historical narrative. It's a fact that actually happened. It's a scene that happened. Is a wonderful picture of what Jesus does for people that are locked in the doubting castle. I want to make three observations in this text. And let's look again at verses 14 through 18 where we see this first observation. And I want you to know this is. Here's observation number one. That there were many, many obstacles, but this father did not give up. Look again just briefly at verses 14 through 18. We'll just kind of summarize it. What's happening here, setting the scene. Jesus has just come down. It's, it's notable to understand the context. When we just sort of zoom in on a passage like we've done today, we need to remember the context. Jesus, in the first part of Mark chapter 9, has just come down from the mountain from his transfiguration, which was this beautiful, glorious, maybe the most glorious scene other than the resurrection itself and the earthly ministry of Jesus where he is transfigured before three of his disciples and they come down, he's, he's transfigured into his heavenly glorious state and he comes down from this mountain after his transfiguration and he finds the remaining disciples arguing with some scribes with this father and that's the scene and they come down and the, this man has brought his his son to the disciples, Jesus and the other three disciples were up on the mountain. So this man brings his son to the remaining disciples. And apparently he had asked them to heal his boy and they were not able. And now the scribes have pounced on this opportunity to discredit the ministry of Jesus. And there is this argument that's happening. And Jesus, can you imagine just the it's, it's kind of like Moses coming down off of Mount Sinai after he hears from God, and then all of a sudden he finds the, the nation of Israel, you know, worshiping these golden calves. And Jesus, can you imagine, man, I've just got transfigured, and you guys are arguing over this. Earlier, Jesus has sent the disciples out in Mark chapter 6, two by two, and he, he told them to go preach the gospel, and they did with great success. And in fact, when they preached the gospel, the great signs happened through their name. It says that they cast out demons. And so they were thinking maybe they could do this again, but they could not. And Jesus descends from the mountain into the scene where there is this great argument, great disagreement. And this man speaks up in verse 17. What's going on? Jesus says, what's going on here? What are you arguing about with them? And verse 17, this man says from the crowd, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I want us to just note just the temptations that must have been going on in this father's heart. You know, he could have blamed the people around him. I mean, just think about what's going on in his heart before verse 17. He could have blamed the disciples. Man, I thought, I heard about these disciples that had been sent by this teacher, and they had great success in casting out demons earlier in Mark chapter 6, and now there's nothing for me. Or maybe he might blame the scribes, and he says, you know, if the scribes would have been here, if the scene would have been a little bit better, if the mood would have been right, if they wouldn't have disturbed the mojo of the disciples, then maybe they could have cast out this demon from my boy. He could have been tempted to blame the people around him, or, or maybe, who knows what's going on in his mind, the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can just speculate, or maybe, and we are prone to this, he could have looked within himself and he could have said, you know what, my situation is worse than anything else that the disciples and this teacher Jesus have encountered up to this point, and so maybe me and my son, maybe my problem is just beyond the reach of help. 
maybe I'm a special case. Those two temptations, to blame everybody around you or to look at yourself and say, no, no, I'm, I'm beyond, beyond hope. But he doesn't do that. There is this spark in this father. Not a perfect spark, but a spark in this father. And he speaks up in verse 17 and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And it seizes him and throws him down in verse 18. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. He doesn't hedge. He doesn't sort of minimize it. He doesn't say, well, you know, my son's been having problems. Can we, can we, can we go over here behind the, you know, the tree and have this little private meeting? And let me tell you, he says it all out in the open. He bears his soul. He faces his shame. And he says, Jesus, help me. Boy, I look at this, the, the example of this father, and I just look at my own heart and the age that we live in and the hearts of so many of us and how prone we are to give up so easily. This world disciples us in fragility. It disciples us to be weak people who blame others or or make our own situation the, the, the highest thing in the moment and exalt our, our, our patheticness over the power of God. And this man presses through that and he says, No, I'm going to face my shame and I'm going to face it head on and I'm going to be honest with Jesus. And he does not give up. He doesn't give up. And maybe, maybe, and here, here's the, man, spiritual obstacles can be so insidious and so imperceptible. At times even, at times, for people like us, good doctrine can be a kind of strange obstacle. He might have been a good Reformed theologian, and he might have just said, well, you know, God is sovereign, and so this is just my lot in life. This is just what we're supposed to face. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't use God's sovereignty as an excuse for fatalism. He presses in. He speaks up in verse 17 and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you. I'm here. I'm pushing through obstacles. Your disciples were worthless. The scribes wanted to tour me. And I don't know what's going on inside my heart. And you're going to see in just a moment there's a lot of doubt, a little bit of faith. But I'm here. Teacher, can you do anything for me? There were obstacles. But just notice, first observation is father did not give up. And then it continues in verses 19 and 20. What does Jesus say? He laments. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus. And then notice what happens when they bring the boy to Jesus. Here's my observation number two. When Jesus shows up, things got messy. Okay, it actually gets messier before it gets better. It got messier before it gets better. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And, you know, Jesus is here now, so everything's going to be fine, right? But no, it, it, the, the spirit, lowercase s, that's the demonic spirit that was in the boy. When the spirit saw him, meaning Jesus, what, does it just kind of cleanly exit the boy and say, okay, I'm sorry, Jesus, you're here now? When the spirit, the demonic spirit, saw Jesus, fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
<laughs> this boy isn't going to give up without a fight. It, it, it throws him down and slaps him around one. Things got messy. Spiritual wholeness and healing is never clean. It's never clean. Notice what happens. The Spirit sees Jesus. It reacts to him. It gets messy right out in the open. And imagine what's going through the Father's mind at this moment. Maybe he's regretting it. Maybe he's saying, gosh, I should have just stayed home. I should have just, you know, just, just kind of kept going with how things were. We've been enduring up to this point. In fact, who knows how old this boy was, but there's a sense that this has happened to this boy since his very early age, maybe even infancy. He's probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, who knows? Text doesn't tell us, but it's been some time, and there's no doubt that the father has at least coped with this to the point where he can manage it, and there's maybe this temptation to say, gosh, this is getting messy. Gosh, this is ugly. Gosh, this is embarrassing. Let me just retreat back into the way I have always coped with it. But Jesus doesn't. Let that happen. Friends, this is a picture. This is a picture of the mess of the Christian life, the mess of sanctification, the mess of healing and wholeness. The people of God, and listen to me, please. In a couple weeks on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, and and I, I'm really looking forward to digging into that, so please do come to that. But I want to make a note here that I, I think sometimes we err on, on two extremes when we talk about spiritual warfare. On the one hand, we tend to overemphasize it and act like everything that's difficult or everything that happens in life that's out of whack is somehow attributable to some demon or devil that's against us. And we sort of overemphasize spiritual warfare. Maybe some of us are more prone to is that we tend to underemphasize it. In this kind of man-centered, humanistic age that we live in, we think it all depends on us, and we do not realize that we have an enemy who prowls about, First Peter 5, he prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the ruler of this dark age. And at times people have asked me, and I've wondered myself, why, at least in our culture, in modern-day America, do we not seem to see things like demon possession? Why doesn't the spiritual war that we are fighting in this particular age, why are the tactics of the enemy seemingly not as overt and obvious as they were in biblical times? Was it just primitive literature? Does the Bible not really know what it's talking about? Is this just a kind of, of, of emphatic way of talking about some spiritual encounter? No. I think this was real demonic possession or demonic disturbance, and I don't think that's gone away. I'm not saying that people in our culture necessarily face this type of demonic possession, but we certainly face an oppression and maybe one of the tactics of the enemy in our age is to make it so imperceptible, to make it so socially acceptable to throw therapeutic language on it as if it's merely a human psychological problem when in reality the core of the issue is sin and the reality is that we have a devil, a demon, an enemy who is hijacking that and using it against us and warring against our souls. And we paper over it, 
and we say, oh, well, if my dad was just this, or if my marriage was just that, or whatever. And yes, there's a whole bunch of flesh that we got to mortify, but there is an enemy that wants to destroy us. And we need to appreciate the process that we can't do battle in a pristine way and be happy church people all the time. It just doesn't work. We always keep the battle out here rather than dealing with the reality of the spiritual fight that we're all in. When Jesus shows up, things get messy, and spiritual renewal and wholeness is never a clean process. That's why it's so important that the culture of a church be an honest and real culture where people can be themselves and honest before their brothers and sisters and before the Lord. Uh, sometimes there's this, there's this temptation in church culture. Uh, where, like, when, you know, we find out about somebody in the church who's dealing with some particular issue or sin issue or whatever it is. And we tend to think, oh, my gosh, what's happening? The sky is falling. Well, what, this, is, this is evidence of some sort of... No, it might be evidence. It might be evidence that the Lord is here and the Lord is doing business and the Lord is at work. Come on, let's, let's have optimism. When Jesus shows up, things happen, and sometimes messy things happen, but that means God is at work. Friends, just one last point before we move on to the final observation. It's okay to be real. Life is a mess. The pathway to wholeness can be really, really messy. The devil is real. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but listen to me. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And those are just preliminary points to what I think is the last and final observation, which is really what this story is about. It's so, it's so sweet. It's so good. Listen to observation three. Jesus. Jesus responds to doubt-filled faith. Jesus responds to imperfect, weak, trembling Unconfident, doubt-filled faith. Look at verse 21 through 27. These are, these are some of the most glorious passages in all the Bible. I know I say that a lot, but I didn't know this, this, this really is. <laughs> Especially verse 24. If you've got a highlighter, if you're an underliner and you don't underline verse 24, I think you might be out of the will of God if, you, if you're a highlighter. And you don't outline, underline, if you're an underliner and you don't underline or a highlighter, whatever, you know what I'm talking about, verse 24. Jesus asked the Father, how long has this been happening to him? Uh, from childhood, so maybe since he was an infant. Cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. And then and the man says this, 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 but if you can do anything, have compassion on us, please. And Jesus says, verse 23, this is so beautiful. He doesn't say to the man, you know, when you, when you have enough faith, come back. Come back. And then we'll, we'll see whether or not you have the right answer. When you know enough Bible, when you have enough systematic theology, when you've, when you've ticked off a certain number of Bibles, so when, you've, when you've accumulated enough knowledge of the Christian life, then come back and I'll see if I'll respond to it. Jesus says to him, 
And and not only does he send him away, he doesn't pat him on the back and tell him that everything is going to be fine. He he, He just talks about himself. He says, if you can... It almost seems severe that Jesus, be, Jesus is coming to you. Be, be a little bit more gentle. Jesus, don't you, Jesus, didn't you take any biblical counseling classes? If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. He calls this trembling, doubting man to faith in himself, in Christ. And immediately the father of child, look at how he responds. This man, he is a picture. He is a model of the anti-fragile soul. And isn't this beautiful that a man who's filled with doubt can press through the frailty that we're all so prone to. And he isn't put off by Jesus' seemingly insensitive answer. In verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out. And here it is. Here's the phrase, I believe I believe, I do believe, I believe, but Jesus, there's a part of me, in fact, there's a big part of me that that isn't believing. What courage, what spiritual honesty. I believe, but help my unbelief. What does Jesus say? What's his stunning response? Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, look at this, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So the most of them said, he is dead. I mean, why is that? Couldn't it be like, wait a minute. And there he sprung up and he looked wonderful and he went and he made all-stars in the Little League team. Looked like he was dead. Verse 27. Don't miss verse 27. But Jesus, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up And he rose. He rose. He rose. Jesus responded to the doubt-filled, imperfect, trembling, frail, meager, weak, imperfect faith of the Father. Friends, this is a wonderful gospel truth. We are saved not because of the strength of our faith, but because of the strength of the object of our faith, which is Jesus. The answer is never, come back when you've got enough. It's always, I'm enough. Look to me with your trembling hand. And that doesn't just apply for salvation it applies for sanctification it applies with our battles against sin we turn away from ourselves we come to him beaten up and listen in the story of christian in the pilgrim's progress 
the implication, the assumption is, is that he is a believer. He is on the pathway of sanctification. And even then he finds himself in the castle of doubt, locked up by the giant despair. This is the experience on some level of every Christian. And Jesus moves in our life. Jesus assures us of his glory. He assures us of his perseverance, not because of the strength of our will, but because of the strength of his love for his people. Take note of the mercy and the kindness and compassion of Jesus. This is the heart of the passage. If you see what's going on in this interaction between Jesus and his Father, you see the very heart of the grace of the gospel. Psalm 103, I've been reading through the Psalms uh, this summer, and it's been really good for my soul. Psalm 103, verse 14, says something along the lines of, He, he remembers our frame, and he knows that we are dust. And yet, he's gracious to us anyway. Friends, doubt lies. Despair lies. Our own hearts lie to us. But Jesus, Jesus calls us to himself despite that. So how does that story end, that little scene in Pilgrim's Progress? It's really glorious. I know some of you are experts in Pilgrim's Progress. If I'm getting this wrong, correct me, but I think this is how it goes. Christian has this friend. Christian has this friend with him named Hopeful. <laughs> Man. Come on, Pete. I want to be a friend like Hopeful, and I, and I need friends like Hopeful. Come on, can we just be a, a married band of hopefuls for one another? Because we're all going to be like Christian locked up in the Doubting Castle. And Hopeful has this conversation with Christian as they're, I think they're locked up in the castle for four or five days. Giant despair has come. He said, here's some poison. <laughs> That's not the way you want to do it. Here's a knife. Well, if that's not the way you want to do it, here's a noose. Either way, I've given you three options. I'm making it easy. Just take your own life because there is no hope. And some of us are there. You may not be prompted to take your own life, but you're prompted to just give in and settle in to this idea, this lie, that despair is your king and this is the way it's going to be. And Jesus will never free you from this thing. You will never get over this sin and you're locked in the doubting castle. And hope comes, hopeful comes along and he says, no, no, Christian, remember, remember the promises of God. He's good. Come on. He's for us, not against us. He has, he has read it this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not right, graciously give us all things? And so hopeful reminds Christian, hopeful reminds Christian of the goodness of the king of the celestial city. And then Christian is prompted to remember something. And he remembers. <laughs> he remembers that he has a key. 
tucked away in his coat pocket. And this key is called promise. And he remembers that this key promise will unlock any door in Doubting Castle. <laughs> and he takes this key and he and Hopeful go and they unlock the Doubting Castle and they flee from the giant despair and they get back on the narrow way. Now Bunyan, Bunyan was the man. What's this a picture of? It's a picture of this man in Mark 9. Jesus reminds him of himself. He doesn't say, oh, okay, I know life's been hard, boy. Just, boy, if your church would have been better. If, if, your, if your spouse would have been this. If your company commander would have noticed that. If, if, if your children's school, if, if your coach would have this, if your whatever, if your first sergeant, if your whatever, if your, if all, he doesn't point him, he doesn't, he doesn't put his arms around him and keep him trapped in despair. He gives him the promise, he gives him the key, which is hope in himself, and he says, if I can, if I can, all things are possible for him who believes. Look away from yourself and look to me. Bring your trembling faith because the strength, the strength of the gospel is not in your weak hand, but in the strength of your Savior. Look to me. Now, now listen, don't, don't misinterpret this. Let's not go prosperity gospel on this. This is not a promise that Jesus will immediately heal us of all of our diseases. No, this is much more eternal than that. This is, a, this is an eternal lesson is to say, look above your circumstance. He has the beautiful power to not just release you from this moment, but to release you from eternity. Look up and see Jesus, and he will bring you all the way home. Jesus responds to doubt-filled faith. Is your hand trembling today? Do you feel weak? Are you prone to blame your circumstances? Have you determined that your situation is beyond hope? Oh, dear friend, find yourself right in the merry band of Christians who've been locked in the doubting castle who only need to remember that deep within your bosom is a key. It's the gospel. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who says, look to me, come to me, and be free. Jesus. Jesus delights in responding to doubt-filled faith. Because then an onlooking world looks around at people who persevere and promise and get back on the narrow way, and they say, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't because of him. It wasn't anything in that guy. It was because of the Lord, and he delights in glorifying himself through the trembling hands of the weak faith of his trembling servants for his glory and their good. Let's pray. Uh, before I pray, just, just with, in this moment of just reverence and introspection, I've mentioned this a few times recently, this is my heart in this moment. Um, 
you know, I believe God can work anytime, anywhere, anyway. He can work in the quietness of your bedroom as you kneel down to pray at night. He can work in your car as you're driving around town. He works in the stillness of our lives. But I do believe there is something particularly powerful to be responding to God in the moment when do not harden your heart. If he's speaking to you, respond. And there's something about responding to the Lord and praying to the Lord in the gathering of the people of God. And I think there are some of us that need to do that right now. I think in just a moment after I pray and the worship team comes and leads us in a song or two, I think you need to get up from your seat and you need to find somewhere, maybe just around the edges, and you need to pray or you need to go to somebody and you need to pray. And I'm going to be down here. Some of the elders and their wives can find themselves maybe out in the aisles or wherever. We don't need to orchestrate this. Let's just let the Spirit lead us and let's press in. Let's bring our weak, feeble hands to Jesus and let's pray and let's repent and let's reject despair and let's remember the key and let's reach into our coat and grab the key promise and let's go to God together. Come on, come on. Don't, don't leave this room unchanged. Don't, don't, don't leave this room with the burden of despair. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to a brother and sister. You've got a bunch of hopefuls around you right now. Now is the time. Come on. Let's, 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 let's believe God to do mighty things. Let's believe him for habits to be broken, for, for sin to be vanquished, for sanctification to take a great leap, for, for souls to be saved. Let's do it. Please, and don't be, don't, don't fight through the obstacle like this father did. Don't, don't be tempted. Well, if I get up and I pray, somebody will be wonder what's going on in my life. Ah, who cares? Who cares? What will that mean 20 years from now? That somebody wondered why you went to get prayed for, where you went to kneel down just at the corner of the sanctuary. Who cares? We won't remember that in two days. Don't let that stop you. Please do business with God. Please. Please. Lord, not my father, not my brother. It's me, oh Lord. Stand in in the need of prayer. Not the elders, not the deacons. It's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Lord, we come, we come now like this father. We are like this father. We come, some of us trapped in the castle of doubt, held captive by the giant of despair. Lord Jesus, together now, we reach for the key of the promise of the gospel that Jesus is for us and not against us. Do wonderful things, Lord. Do wonderful things among us today as we respond to your word and song and repentance and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.